Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. How would you react if you were told your days were numbered? That your life had been cut short by a treatment that was meant to make you better? And that in two or three years, you were going to die from a painful and stigmatised disease? The worst thing they did was put two to three years on it. With that prognosis, you'd find yourself grieving for your life. Your first reaction would probably be denial unable to comprehend the gravity of the news. We were just numb. We were in a state of shock. And you might try to carry on, as if nothing has happened. We just didn't speak about it, to be honest. There was nothing to say to each other. There was nothing we could do. I just used to get on the sofa, pull a duvet over me and just sit and watch TV. And you hope that there'll be a treatment? They'll be OK. They're going to be OK. As time passes, you'll become increasingly terrified about the end of your life worrying when your time will come. It will get harder to carry on as normal. So you're going to die young anyway, right? So what's the point in school? Yeah, I kind of went off the rails a little bit, yeah. Yeah, well, quite a lot, to be honest, yeah. Time to give up work. I had no, no other option. I used to drink a lot, drink to null the pain. I know of at least eight or nine people that drank themselves almost to death. You might start to think about all the things you want to do before you die. Draw up a bucket list and start spending your money. Because what's the point of money if you're going to die? First Icelandic horses running around. He wanted to do things that were sort of like, would cost lots of money. It's just fantastic. I've never seen anything on this scale, ever. We flew ever. to Mexico and we spent nearly a year travelling overland to Brazil. Some boys bought a fast car. They spent every single night out on the town. Plastered. They just blew all the money. Many, many people with a hand to mouth. And then we start to get into debt. And all the while, you'll become increasingly aware of your own mortality. And then you take your pulse, then you take your pulse, and then you take your pulse. And you keep taking your pulse for as long as you can. And I still developed a habit of taking my pulse. I still do it today. How often? Five times a day, ten times a day, every day. As the years wane and it starts to look like this disease might not kill you after all, that you could survive the death sentence, then you'll start to get angry for yourself and your friends who didn't make it. And you'll want to fight the people that did this to you. This is far from an accident. And I wanted to do something about it. I'm Cara McGugan and this is Bed of Lies, Episode 3, Confrontation. Since the first episode of this series of Bed of Lies came out, the people I've spoken to have been getting in touch. One texts me to say, we've had no agency, no voice. HIV has a silencing effect. Another says, it's the first time in 36 years that we've been heard. When I walk into the infected blood inquiry, I'm struck by the resilience of these survivors. They were given HIV decades ago, 
But here they are, in their 50s and 60s, travelling down to London and spending weeks in a local hotel. For the best part of four decades, they've been fighting for the truth. They want to hear all the evidence. Because more than 1,500 people with haemophilia in the UK have already died from factor VIII infections. Those deaths are never far from survivors' minds, and the number's still growing. One by one, especially from the period uh, between, say, 1987 through to 97. A lot of them have died now, unfortunately. And that was a fairly common occurrence. Jason died in 97. Gary died in 2015. Ray and David died. And they have all now passed away. We just lost them. It's not natural for somebody in their 30s to go to funerals. The funerals have continued. There was even one this summer. Hi, Steve Bartram. Um, Well, we're just uh, finished with uh, my good friend Michael's uh, funeral. Lovely service. Um, It shouldn't have been taken way, way, way too soon. Just a genuinely nice guy and sadly missed. And a lot of those people never got answers. But it's not for want of trying. In the late 80s, people who got HIV from Factor Eight sued the government. They filed a civil claim against the Department of Health. The opportunity was there to put the hands in the air and say, sorry, we got this wrong, we will, we will settle this litigation in a proper way, we'll find out... That's Des Collins. He's a lawyer who's represented some of the survivors in recent years. Thatcher took a view that this was not something which was going to get out into the open and was not something which should be compensated. She handed that view over to John Major when he took over. Margaret Thatcher's government didn't want to air their dirty laundry in court, so they settled out of court. In 1991, the government agreed to pay about £40 million to a charity called the McFarlane Trust. That was set up to support haemophiliacs with HIV. And the payment was ex gratia, meaning the government did it voluntarily. They've given a few of these over the years. But crucially, the government didn't accept liability. And this wasn't compensation. And that's important because no one here has ever accepted responsibility or apologised for what happened. The money was all going to be paid, and in fact was paid into the McFarland special payments. Des is showing me a document that outlines how that £40 million was split between people with HIV. A single adult would get 23500 A married adult without dependent children would get 32000 A haemophiliac with dependent children would get 60500 Infected intimates, adults or married infants, 23,500, unmarried infants. Around £20,000 for being infected with HIV and, you know, potentially given a death sentence, it does not sound like very much. No, 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 it doesn't, it's nothing. It's not, even back in 1990, it was nothing. No, no, it was, it, it was an insult. How much do you think it should have been? A single adult, £23,500, should have been looking at half a million. It's that, that much difference. 
and there was something hidden in the settlement that would make people with haemophilia really angry down the line. The government introduced a new clause at the last minute. If one person didn't sign their waiver, nobody would get a penny. So it was blackmail, essentially. That's Richard from Trelaws. The waiver said people with haemophilia couldn't sue again for more viruses. But at that point, the government already knew that Factor VIII contained another virus, one that was almost as fatal as HIV, hepatitis C. Now, I could spend ages on the technical legal parts of this story, but the best way to illustrate it is through what happened to two people I've been speaking to, Simon and Nigel. They're the identical twins from Northern Ireland. We weren't told anything until we were told that we had the viruses. That's Simon, but they sound pretty similar. They didn't have HIV, so they didn't get anything from that lawsuit. But a year after it was settled, Nigel got a diagnosis. She said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, she said, you've got hepatitis C. It's different to the hepatitis that was going around Trelaw's school. Those were more mild forms. Hepatitis C was only given its name in the late 80s. Nigel was in hospital after tearing his esophagus. But one of the prawns wasn't good. Uh, and I was violently sick in the hotel I was in. He was in his early 30s and working in England. I called into my consultant here in Northern Ireland, Elizabeth Main, and uh, she kindly said, offered to tie the esophagus we did. Nigel discovered he'd contracted hepatitis C when he was 16 after a cosmetic eye operation. And although his medical notes contained abnormal liver readings, going back years, no doctor had ever told him. A test for the virus was only released in the early 90s, but doctors did know about it before. And I had a family at that stage, four sons and a wife. I don't have them now. My wife decided that it just wasn't practical for me to wash the kids, eat with the kids, because I was carrying hepatitis C. And I'm afraid my marriage broke down. A couple of years later, Simon was also told he had the virus. I remember when I went in to see the two consultants and my blood readings hadn't been great. They were convinced that I had uh, cirrhosis of the liver. He was working as an accountant. And I remember saying, no, um, I'm I'm completely convinced that I'm fine, I've been living a normal life, I've been pushing on and doing all the things that I've been doing, sport and everything else. Simon was infected in the mid-1980s after someone kicked a ball into his leg during a game of five-a-side. His legs swelled up and he was given factor eight to stop the bleed. You became infected and you were ill for a long time before you realised why you were ill. Hepatitis C can go unnoticed for decades. It lies dormant and then starts to attack the liver. Left untreated, it can cause cirrhosis of the liver and liver cancer. Whenever we look back now, we realise that we were, both of us, living what we thought were full lives on about 50% or 60% energy. By that stage, Simon and Nigel both had cirrhosis of the liver. Knowing that the whole time the ticking bomb is ready to go off in your system at some stage in the future is criminal. Across the UK, more people with haemophilia were getting news that they had hepatitis C. 
as many as 4,500 people tested positive. And it was a further disaster the government could see coming. But instead of telling people, it made them sign that waiver. The end of the century was in sight. Scientists were racing to get an effective treatment for AIDS out to patients. And it seemed as if the public was slowly overcoming the fear that had set in a decade before. When Claire became a widower at 31, after her husband Brian died, she made a promise to herself. To make the best of life and to make make it as joyous and as, as wonderful as possible. She had HIV, but she was healthy. I threw myself into my work. I just <laughs> carried on. She moved to London to do a master's with the Royal College of Art. She was continuing her dream of being an archive conservator and she was working with Shakespeare folios that were centuries old. It was fantastic. I loved it. But before long, she started to get ill. Her HIV developed into AIDS. Her weight dropped to six stone and she was hospitalised. All her fears started to come true of being alone on a ward and dying like Brian had. Claire took a year out of university to get better. When she tried to return, they kicked her out. But she wasn't going to take that. She was more confident now, and she had a group of friends at the Coalition of People Living with HIV and AIDS who helped her challenge the decision. And the Royal College of Art eventually said, We're really sorry. Um, we will change our HIV-AIDS policy and, and we praise you for your courage. And we will give you your place back, you know when you're better, which was great. Was that the first time that you'd really spoken out and kind of fought something in that way? Yes, it must have been. Otherwise I would have just died. You know, if I hadn't have lived. And it was just so important. Life took a different shape for the people I've spoken to, different to how it would have looked if they'd never been infected. But they were determined to make it work. Frankie also became independent and hardworking. She had three jobs to keep afloat, but she kept to herself. She took her wedding rings off and didn't tell anyone about her home life. I wouldn't form friendships. I wouldn't form um, relationships with people where they could ask me questions. I was just literally going in there to work and I found that really difficult. Joe's HIV developed into AIDS and Frankie decided that she needed to make a bold decision for both of them. And she thought the best thing to do was to leave him, that they'd be better off apart. Because he was either sink or swim. That is the reality of it. So in 1998, I packed my bags and left. and went to stay with my mum. And we both believed that if I hadn't gone, he, would, he wouldn't be here now because they weren't looking after themselves properly. So I do think it was the right decision uh, for him and me. We might have ended up killing each other. Six months after she left Joe, Frankie got bad news. She also had AIDS, and she doesn't know how long she'd had it. We were told for her not to test because we wouldn't have been able to carry on with a mortgage or get a mortgage. But at least one thing had improved by the late 90s. The treatments, 
they put me virtually straight away on combination therapy within the hospital that, that very same day. And Frankie pulled through. Like Claire, she threw her energy into studying. She went back to school and got A-levels and a degree. I just got on with my life. Joe found other people with haemophilia who'd also been infected with HIV. They called themselves the Birchgrove Group. And before long, they started campaigning. They made contact with other campaign groups abroad. Overseas, there were already public inquiries going on. And in some countries, doctors and politicians had been charged with manslaughter. That wound us up even more on this side of the water, really. And we needed to do something. And so it became a a very militant campaign organisation. We had had enough. Joe travelled to France to get tips from a group of activists who were also protesting against infected blood. And we got talking to the French version of Birchgrove, who had had their office firebombed numerous times. When I was there, it was more like a Harry Palmer film, the way I was picked up and taken to this office. They're these old black and white films where Michael Caine plays a spy. Joe was after something top secret from his counterparts. He had a daring plan. They'd been working on this product where you could dye a fountain red, but that's instant criminal damage. So he needed the product the French had been working on, which could make the fountain clear again. We needed to do something. And the ideas went on and on. We even spoke with one person who was seriously, seriously ill and we literally discussed the feasibility of him dying on the steps of number 10 when we handed him some flowers. But Joe's group weren't getting the attention they really wanted and they weren't the only ones. The boys from Trelaws set up their own campaign And Carol, the nurse whose husband died from AIDS, started investigating. Collecting information, collecting... She took her findings to every institution she could. She went to the police, but they didn't take action. She lodged formal complaints with the Haemophilia Society. And she took legal action against the General Medical Council. But nothing was making a difference. All any of the campaigners ever achieved were small victories. And for some of us, uh, it has literally taken our whole lives. They were pushed from pillar to post. They teamed up and fell out. And the public lost sight of the biggest treatment disaster in NHS history. As time passed, priorities changed. The government never did pay compensation but it provided haphazard one-off payments to the McFarlane Trust. That's the charity that was set up to support people with haemophilia. But survivors had to apply for every scrap of money, whether that was for a new washing machine or to fix their car. They found it undignified. Very, very degrading. That's Claire again. And the process itself was degrading. The way we were treated was degrading. And they still had their own personal battle, to stay alive. Richard from Trelaws thinks the government had that in mind all along. They've just been biding their time and waiting for as many people to die as possible before ultimately they will do something. I think in the eyes of the government, 
Navarro's viewed as has been expendable, an inconvenient afterthought that should have gone away a long time ago. But an unlikely new campaigner was about to enter the scene. A man half their age was about to unearth some damning evidence that would make all the difference. More on that after this short break. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Laura Donnelly. I'm The Telegraph's health editor, which means I look into the latest medical developments and research and investigate what's really going on in our health services. It also means I've spent time uncovering the human stories behind the infected blood scandal. I've written about the cover-ups, revealed leaked documents and the stories of families torn apart by the disaster. But we couldn't do justice to stories like this or make podcasts like Bed of Lies without our subscribers. If you'd like to support quality journalism and read as much as you can on politics, sport, business, culture and more, head to telegraph.co.uk slash liespodcast where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. That's telegraph.co.uk slash liespodcast or click on the link in the episode description. times like this where the press stuff goes a bit mad. I'm at the infected blood inquiry with Jason. He's a campaigner and he's showing me the boxes and boxes of documents that he's helped gather over the years. There's evidence of mistakes, delays and cover-up. But as we've shown in my evidence... Jason's about my age. He was born into this story in 1989. On my birth sheet, where it says how much you weigh... Um, and those kinds of things. It's got the big biohazard symbol on it. And on the day I was born, I had a HIV test. Because Jason's dad, Jonathan, had haemophilia and he was infected with HIV by his factor eight. Do you remember much about your dad? Not really. Not in terms of direct memories. I guess because I was just so young, your brain just doesn't retain it. Jason's dad died when he was four. And he became one of the many children who lost parents or were orphaned in this scandal. It's one that's rippled through the generations. He knew what was happening. They all did. You know, he was watching his friends, his fellow haemophiliacs die around him. So he, he knew what was coming. Uh, after he died, my mum kind of really fell apart. And whenever Jason asked what had happened to his dad, his mum couldn't tell him. In fact, she couldn't really speak about her late husband at all. Even to this day, she just, if she was here now, she'd be crying, just hearing me speak about it. If you ask her to say more than five words about it, she starts crying. So I had to kind of find out the answers for myself. Jason knew his dad had AIDS, but that was it. 
He was just a young boy, but he came up with reasons for his dad's death. Like, could he have been secretly gay or an intravenous drug user? I literally thought there was a like an inter-family conspiracy theory to not tell me the truth of how my dad had got AIDS. And as it would turn out, the answer to how he got AIDS would be far more complicated than any of those two possibilities. In his first IT lesson at secondary school, the first time he'd used a computer, Jason realised he could finally get an answer. He was 13. And the teacher was like, there's this amazing new thing called Google and you can search for anything you want on it. He typed out AIDS and blood, then hit search. I began to learn about the the transmission through blood products. I thought that this had only happened to my dad. So not only was I learning about how it happened, but also the fact that it had impacted other people. Jason was surprised, but his curiosity was satisfied. He believed his dad's death was a big, tragic accident. Hundreds of people had died, but nothing could have been done to stop it. And he got on with the job of becoming a young man. My main passion in life was music. Yeah, international connections, UK, Poland. You know, I still had a regular job, but that had allowed me to meet, you know, a lot of my kind of musical heroes. And I'd gone around doing gigs in Europe. I'm keeping them choking, looking at me, seeing them open. Even to this day, I still do that in my, my personal time. That's that's almost like therapy for me. That all changed in 2015, when Jason heard that an inquiry into the disaster was due to report, the Penrose Inquiry. Now, this is a bit complicated, but stick with me. There have been three inquiries into contaminated blood, The most recent, which is still happening, is the one at that central London office block. That's the infected blood inquiry, and it's the most far-reaching. It's statutory, which means it has legal powers to formally investigate. The ones that came before it didn't have as much authority, and although they discovered mistakes, no one was held to account. The Penrose inquiry was set up in Scotland, and it couldn't make Westminster politicians give evidence. That's the one Jason heard about. Lord Penrose has asked me to deliver this statement on his behalf. I booked the day off work. Before doing so, however... He followed some groups on Facebook that were being run by campaigners who'd gone up to Scotland for the report. Many people in Scotland were infected with hepatitis C and HIV by blood transfusion... And eventually... These viruses, you know, it started to come through that it was a disaster. Some of those that became ill... It would turn out it made one recommendation, which was that anyone that received blood or blood products before 91 should be tested for hepatitis C. That was it. You know, however many years it was, five, six years plus, 12 million pounds, have a hepatitis C test. It was a disaster.
but within minutes of her finishing, there were shouts of anger because of the key conclusion. People called it a whitewash, and some campaigners set fire to a copy of the report. It was also said that nothing could or should have been done differently. Nothing. I knew that just in my dad's personal case, I could name a number of things that could and should have been done a lot differently. That day just lit something in me, like there was a conscious decision in my mind where I I said, I'm going to do something. Where do you start? Where did I start? That's a good question. So I'd gone online and in my naive mind at that point, I thought, government, the prime minister must know. (laughs) I went online. I think probably the first thing I would have done is to have written some email or letter to Cameron. Now I look back on it, that was probably the most useless thing I could have attempted to have done. (laughs) Jason read the Freedom of Information Act and started to send hundreds of requests to government departments, mainly the Department of Health and the Cabinet Office. Then the government announced it was making the files from the Penrose Inquiry available through the National Archives. Jason downloaded them all onto his computer. That's when the imbalance in my life began because I now had tens of thousands of pages of documents on my computer that I can access at any time that lay out to a degree how it was that my dad would end up dead. And so the obsession with reading all of that just took over completely at that stage. He travelled to Richmond, where the National Archives are held, to read the actual documents. Which for me was a 210-mile round trip. He was so focused he'd forget to eat or drink, and he'd leave the archives with a pounding headache. When he found key documents, he would send them to journalists at national newspapers. You know, I thought, that's kind of amazing, that I had found this document on a website and it was now in a national newspaper which for me you know going back to this thing as just a kid that likes DJing with his mates that seemed pretty impressive to me I began to do that again and again and again. After all this time all the efforts of hundreds of campaigners and Jason's discovery of a world of wrongdoing it looked like progress was finally being made. But he still hit a dead end. He wrote to hundreds of lawyers, but none of them got back to him. No one would take on the case. I've been looking through documents that have been unearthed by Jason, Carol and the inquiry. I've spoken to dozens of survivors, lawyers and campaigners. And there are some key bits of evidence that make you think. This tragedy could have been prevented. I'm at the inquiry on the day Ken Clark is giving evidence. He was the Minister for Health back in a crucial period in the 1980s. 
and he was an MP for 49 years. A lot of campaigners are angry about what happened on his watch. They believe they're finally going to get the truth when Ken Clark takes the stand. Uh, my full name is Kenneth Harry Clark. I swear by Almighty God. That the, evidence the room is packed. I've never seen it so full, even if they are sitting in socially distanced clusters. The, whole the atmosphere is tense, and the back row is lined with a column of lawyers in suits. Ken Clark is an older man now, and he talks in a characteristic way, fumbling yet assured. I don't get me wrong. I'm just explaining what the factual situation is. I'm not not trying to escape saying one me gov. I don't think the department did anything wrong. I, I don't, I've never heard. Any Pretty soon, it becomes clear that Ken Clark isn't going to give the survivors what they want. Either should not have been done or could have been done better. And tensions rise in the room. They react out loud. You can see their disdain. Does the Minister of State... And Ken Clark keeps interrupting lead counsel Jenny Richards. Well, we're a team, yes, yes. It's greatly regrettable if the department... Ken Clark's actually quite dismissive of the inquiry as a whole. There were people who agreed with me. Well, don't worry, we'll be looking at, at, at as many of the documents as we need to, Lord Clark, rather than selected. Well, we can go, we can go to the lot we want. I don't quite yeah. what sure the point of any of this is. Depressed and annoyed, infuriated. Uh, he was so dismissive. I get a strong feeling he didn't come willingly. Rude, arrogant, condescending. That struck me more than anything else. Uh, the fact that So Ken Clark doesn't really tell campaigners anything. But I've got a good idea of what happened during those critical years when Factor 8 was infecting people and the shocking errors that were made. I think there are three main places where it all went wrong. The first was England's reliance on American blood products. Products like haemophil, as its makers admit, also carry a high risk of transmitting hepatitis, a painful, debilitating liver disease. Some haemophiliacs are immune... That archive is from a 1975 documentary called World in Action. Even more disturbing, new evidence... It was an ITV investigative programme which ran for 35 years, and it often had an impact on events of the day. At its height, 23 million people watched it. Haemophil was first imported two years ago because the blood transfusion service couldn't meet demands for more concentrates. Since April 1974, there's been an unprecedented outbreak of hepatitis among haemophiliacs. This episode was called Blood Money, and it revealed where exactly the plasma for American Factor VIII was coming from. Unlike Britain, where blood is given voluntarily, in America, plasma is bought. Much of it is bought from men who need money badly. Around the same time, the World Health Organization passed a resolution that urged countries not to import blood products. This is East Baltimore Street, the city's skid row. This area with its bars, sex shops and peep shows is home to many Baltimore alcoholics and down-and-outs. Several years before Ken Clark and Margaret Thatcher took office, the British health minister was David Owen and he responded to the growing threat. He was a former doctor, and he realised how dangerous American blood products could be. So he launched a plan to invest in Britain's own blood products laboratory and become self-sufficient in two years. And the plan looked like it was going to work. He secured the money from the Treasury, 
and was on track to make Britain self-sufficient. I went to see Lord Owen to get more information, but he says that now he's given evidence to the inquiry, he wants to wait for its report. But he did say this to me. Having been blocked from having an inquiry for so many years, I don't want to preempt in any way their findings. And as far as compensation is concerned, I think governments owe it to their people when mistakes have been made to be generous. He hopes it will get to the bottom of what happened. We say a friendly goodbye, but before I leave, he urges me to listen closely to his evidence because it points to something bigger going on. I'll come to that later. David Owen was moved to the Foreign Office and his self-sufficiency plan fell by the wayside. The next health ministers just didn't prioritise it and the chance to save lives was lost. In Scotland, where it did happen, there were far fewer cases of HIV. By the end of the 70s, England's own blood products laboratory was in bad shape. And so for the second place where things went wrong... Doctors continuing to treat with risky factor eight. There wasn't enough British factor eight to go around. I've told you that. But there was another treatment that doctors could have used instead. It was called cryoprecipitate, and it's an earlier version of concentrated plasma. It came out in the 60s, and lots of patients had it before factor eight. It was more difficult to use and took much longer to stop a bleed. Before haemophil, Neil Robinson used a British Factor 8 product called cryoprecipitate. That's world in action again. In one year alone, he made 98 visits to hospital and was off school for three months. Before, it was living between hospital and home. Cryo, as people with haemophilia called it, was less likely to contain viruses. It was made in Britain and contained the blood of fewer people, but it was more rudimentary... A lot of patients now wish their doctors had given them the option to go back to cryo. Jason's dad even asked his doctor if he could do just that. He wanted to go back on to cryo and did for one treatment. But his doctor had told him that what he was seeing in the press was just sensationalism and was trying to sell headlines and this kind of thing. So he went back on to concentrate. A month or so later, Jason's dad tested positive for HIV. Dr. Leah Caparapia tells me why doctors didn't go back to cryo. Remember, he's the doctor who ran the haemophilia centre in Bradford. One of the pressures that I was under, and a lot of consultants who were similar to me would have had, was if we didn't move to concentrates, we were not considered a modern centre. We weren't considered progressive enough. The pressure to use Factor 8 went all the way up the chain, from patients to the top doctors who were advising the government. And the third place where things went wrong? Politicians missing the warning signs. I think the government knew about the danger of the plasma in 1983. That's Des Collins again, the lawyer who represents victims in this case. But they turned a blind eye to it. I'm going to tell you about a critical period in time, the year 1983, because that's when politicians had the chance to change course, to ultimately save lives. 
Don't worry too much about all the dates. It's the order that's important. This is chronological. I've got my colleague Greg Dickinson in the studio with me. He's going to help read some of the documents from the time. In March 1983, Bruce Evert from the Centre for Disease Control in America wrote to Professor Arthur Bloom. He was Britain's leading haemophilia doctor and Bruce said they had increasing numbers of patients getting AIDS in America from factor eight and the letter ended with an ominous warning. I suspect it is a matter of time before you begin to see cases in the United Kingdom. And sure enough, that did start to happen. I've told you about the Mail on Sunday killer blood article, the threat of a deadly disease in blood products, and even more concerning, two British patients already had it. Dr Spence Galbraith, a key public health figure, tried to sound the alarm. He wrote to the Department of Health and pleaded with them. All blood products made from blood donated in the USA after 1978 should be withdrawn from use. A civil servant wrote a memo after reading Dr Galbraith's letter. It said, Alternative supplies of Factor VIII are being considered, but are not going to be easy to come by. Warnings were flying around, but they were batted away. Professor Bloom, the leading doctor, the person who was advising the government and other medics, called the reports unduly alarmist. He said, The cause of AIDS is quite unknown. It would be counterproductive to alter our treatment programmes. And doctors listened to him. Peter Jones, head of the Newcastle Haemophilia Centre, went on television and said, We have absolutely no doubt at all that the benefits are far greater than the risk if the risk is actually there. The Council of Europe said doctors should tell patients about the health hazards of their treatment, but still patients were kept in the dark. With all this mounting evidence, now might have been the time to change policy. The Minister for Health, Ken Clark, took four months to deliberate. Then he made a statement and he said... There is no conclusive evidence that AIDS is transmitted by blood products. And that statement, no conclusive evidence, was repeated over and over again by politicians. There were all these warnings, clear indications that HIV was in factor eight, that the blood supply was contaminated. But nothing was done about it. And when Ken Clark announced his own policy for Britain to become self-sufficient in 1986, it was just too little too late. By then, nearly a thousand haemophiliacs had tested positive for HIV. In essence, they put money over life. This material should not have continued to be imported into this country, and it was. And if these warnings hadn't been missed in 1983 then all the people I've been telling you about, Jason's dad, Adrian, Richard and Joe, might not have been infected. They might not have been diagnosed with HIV two years later, in 1985. If opportunities hadn't been missed and the warnings were listened to, then could Jason's dad have been saved? And what about Claire's husband, Brian? 
But my hunt for the truth of who killed Brian isn't over. Because there's something else I need to look into. Next time on Bed of Lies. It was a giant, multi-billion dollar annual industry and God, they, they just didn't want to give it up. Every vial that came out of the process was infected with the virus. You want to hear how plasma was collected? Are you ready for that part of this? Bed of Lies is written by me, Cara McGugan, and produced by Sarah Peters at Tuning Fork Productions. The executive producer is Theodora Leloudis, and sound designs by David Thomas. With thanks to Tom Gibbs and Giles Gear. To stay on top of who's who in our story, and to read exclusive behind-the-scenes details, take a look inside my reporter's notebook. We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash notebook. You can listen to the award-winning first series of Bed of Lies, which investigates a very different scandal on this podcast feed. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.